Welcome to you all to this Tuesday lunchtime series. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, three of the major prophets of Israel, the, the three biggies of the later prophets. You're all familiar with the names Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, or Yeshayahu, Yeremiahu, and Yechezkel. And obviously we're going to uh, put those in a bit of context and we're going to discuss some of the major themes and maybe look at some of the challenges uh, that face uh, contemporary scholarship or scholarship of the now and the past in relation to those texts and what they have meant, uh, not only for the Jewish people, but for humanity generally. Uh, just to get, uh, and as Ari said, and as a million people have already asked me, how was Disneyland yesterday? Uh, obviously, as you know, there could be no greater preparation for a discussion on the book of Isaiah than going to Disneyland. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're laughing, that's a joke. Those of you who are thinking, how does that actually work? It was a joke. Disneyland is almost the most irrelevant thing you can think of to a discussion of the book of Isaiah. And so uh, I was a bit concerned that I would turn up today to uh, have this chat with you uh, a little bit unbaked. But I think we'll have enough time to cover the major themes. I got a little bit alarmed uh, over the weekend, um, uh, spending the Shabbat at... Uh, uh, the congregation B'nai Israel, where I found that there were uh, a number of people who uh, knew the Tanakh extremely well, and uh, that's not the case normally when I go around the world and lecture. Uh, so I'm already a little intimidated by the audience, but I'm hoping, or not intimidated, because I'm relying on the fact that maybe I spend a bit of time in these texts and we can come up with some things that people are not always aware of. How many have you, of you have actually read the book of Isaiah? Okay, how many have heard of Isaiah, happy to know about Isaiah, but have never actually sat down and read the text, that, which is fine. Good, so we're talking about half and half. So hopefully we can find a, a median line that can entertain us all. The book of Isaiah is, by all opinions, and not just mine, but by opinions of, of, of anyone who's read it and anyone who is familiar with world spiritual literature is uh, an extremely sublime text. In fact, in terms of biblical literature, it, in my opinion, is, is one of the two great sublime texts of the Bible. When I say sublime, it's a literature that exists at an almost ethereal level in terms of its poetry and its thematics and its power. Uh, those of you who are wondering what the other one is, it's, in my opinion, it's probably Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, which we might call sensual sublime, uh, whereas the book of Isaiah is really the ecstatic sublime, and it is from start to finish the most Im unimaginable uh, poetry pronouncing some of the great themes that when you realize when the book of Isaiah was composed uh, really represents a radical shift in terms of human thinking about God and about nations, about humanity, about practice of daily life. I want to put this uh, in context so that we can uh, see exactly what we're talking about here. So I'm going to draw a line. Just before I do that, because I, th there's something that's on the edge of my mind, and I, I, I'm a little tentative to say this, because I don't want to alienate audiences from the start. Right? I've heard about previous scholars in residence and uh, what happens to some of them, and so far, so far some people have had to leave my lectures in the middle more because of convenience and uh, because I've gone a little over time and they're very apologetic and they go out the door, but I have heard in the past that people actually are not scared of standing up and walking out because they're offended. I told Ari on the phone yesterday that I'm still trying to offend people and I'm just trying to find out exactly where the soft buttons are, but I want to say something that I'm not going to apologise for. So those of you who are going to sit there while I'm about to say what I'm about to say, and I'll, it's impossible to talk about Isaiah and not be a little bit controversial, but hey, you know, 
<laughs> that's why we're here. That's why you spend a lunchtime sitting in this room, not to hear things that you just want to hear, but also to be a little bit scandalised. And you can go back and tell your families, oh my God, I can't believe he said this. <laughs> but the truth is, is that... I'll, I'll, and I, and I'll, I'll open this with a quote uh, by someone you've all heard of, the very famous... Uh, and important figure in Jewish history, the first Prime Minister of the State of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who said that to read the book of Yeshayahu, to read the book of Isaiah in any other language other than its original, is like kissing a beautiful woman through a handkerchief. In other words, you can read Isaiah in English and you will be blown away. But to read it in Hebrew is something that is worth spending a lifetime achieving because, like Disneyland, it's one of those experiences that is very, very hard to describe and encapsulate anywhere else. Now, I know, I know, this is not the first time I've stood in front of audiences in the Jewish world, IS, in the diaspora. I know what goes through people's mind. What goes through people's mind is, oh no, he's probably right, and I hear him, and that's all, but I'm not going to learn Hebrew. That's not for me. And it's too difficult, and no, oh, I'm not. But if we do that, we miss out on an immense part of the gateway to understanding that Hebrew literature wants us to have because the message is, in many cases, intimately linked, intimately linked with the words and the language employed to express it. So I'm not going to go on and on about that, but I do want to say that anybody in this room, doesn't matter how young or how old, the journey that you take into Hebrew is always worthwhile. Every single word, every single idea that you encounter in Hebrew will expand our consciousness of what these tremendous spiritual treasures are trying to say to us. And that could be the subject of another talk, how to learn Hebrew in an hour. We could do that. <laughs> the, the <laughs> Don't joke, it's actually possible. Now, as you know, my, my approach is that, uh, to the Bible is that we can look at texts independent of context and we can say that's very nice and that's very wonderful and very inspiring and we can learn things about it. But when we start to understand texts in their historical context and what forces and situations and events these texts and messages are reacting against, they become so much more present. So... Let's talk about those of you who, are, who, who was here on Thursday for the Chazal and the Edge. Oh, nice, nice, good. So you know that I'll put this line and we'll, talk, we'll call this minus 2,000 and we'll call this 2,000. This is an exercise worth doing just to clarify. Zero. So that's going to be 1,000 or minus 1,000, minus 500, minus 1,500. This is going to be... This is going to be 1,000, this is going to be 500, this is going to be 1,500. And so the period of the prophets that we're going to be talking about is really a period, if we're looking at the total span of Jewish history here, we're talking, of course, about things that happened in the first temple period. And we know from last Tuesday night that the first temple period is... Uh, approximately this period here. So whereas on Thursday lunchtimes we're looking at the Talmudic period, which is really this, which is really this period here, we're going back to this period, the first temple period. I'm going to zoom in it on a moment, zoom on it in a moment. That's the second temple, this is the Talmudic. So we're going back here and now Let's zoom in, but I'm not just going to zoom in on that 500-year period. It's always worth doing this because it's always worth making it very, very clear the historical context in which we are talking because we need to understand what is happening in the world at this time. And the period I'm going to be looking at in this series is a period that's going to go from roundabout minus 750 to roundabout minus... 
550, so about a 200-year period. Everybody follow that? I'll just fill in the 50-year gaps here. Yeah. That's the period that we're going to be looking at that really covers these three major prophets. But even though they live within 200 years of each other, in a 200-year framework, this, like the last 200 years that we're living in now, it's a 200-year period in which the world is radically transforming and changing, and pol I mean politically and intellectually, spiritually, and in many, many ways. It's a very different world from seven minus 750 by the time we get to minus 550, particularly for the Jewish people. So let's open up and let's see what's happening in the middle of the 8th century BCE. In the middle of the 8th century, let's cast our minds back. Most of us could probably remember that. The 8th century BCE. Now, <laughs> you see, the book of Isaiah does, as I said at the very beginning, it does represent certain challenges uh, for scholars and for readers. And the book of Isaiah is not an easy book to match up always to historical circumstances. Scholars have been crawling all over this for a long, long time, trying to do this exact match-up. What I'm going to give you now is probably what I believe to be the clearest likely approximation of the frame of reference for Isaiah, but please be aware that there are many, many different opinions because it's a very complex book structurally. Some of you would know, for example, the great debates that have taken place about the book of Isaiah. What's the most famous debate that's taken place about the book of Isaiah? Sorry? Oh, well, 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 <laughs> manang, manang. I wasn't even thinking of that, and you're absolutely right. The most, the most famous debate about the book of Isaiah is, of course, the tremendous polemic debates that we will touch upon later in this talk that emerge from uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah. That's a very, very famous polemic. But within the scholarship of the book of Isaiah, there are several major fault lines in scholarship, and the most predominant of those is the idea that, in fact, there are two Isaiahs. You're familiar with that? Right, so you would know that there is, well, according to some, according to some scholars, there are actually three Isaiahs, possibly even more, but the big division has always been between chapters 1 to 39, which, uh, in the classical sense, scholars believe was written by a prophet called Yeshayahu, a prophet called Isaiah, living around here. And chapters 40 to 66, which was written by a different person under the name of Isaiah, but more likely around here, in the post-exilic era. Now, we're going to look at the book as a whole, because, as I said on the weekend, in relation to the book of Eov, although discussions on the composition and structure and editing of a text are very, very enlightening and very informative about the ancient world and about our traditions, and they're extremely interesting, we also need to acknowledge that our entire theological and cultural picture of the last 2,000 years, at least in relation to the book of Isaiah, has been built on a single unified composition. And we know that specifically about the book of Isaiah because the text we have today is virtually identical to the text of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the great discoveries in Qumran was in fact an almost complete book of Yeshayahu. So we know that by the time we get to the turn of the, you know, 2,000 years ago, we already have this text, so you can imagine what's happened since then, intellectually and culturally and spiritually, is built on that text. But it's worth being aware that chapters 40 to 66 are very, very different in some way, according to some scholars. There are great scholars that have argued against that and say it's all one composition, 
those who read it can make up their own mind on that, bear in mind that there are many opinions either way. What's happening in the 8th century? <coughs> As you know, because I've discussed this a number of times in the last week in different contexts to do with Tanakh and to do with the ancient world, and especially on Friday night when I spoke about Eliyahu Hanavi, for those who saw me speak about Eliyahu Hanavi, and also last week we spoke about this, is that it's very, very important to understand that ancient Israel was a divided kingdom for much of the duration of the first temple period. What do I mean by a divided kingdom? A divided, there were two kingdoms. There was the ten tribes in the north, the ten, that's the land of Israel. There were ten tribes in the north who had formed the kingdom of Israel. And there was a kingdom in the south. So this is Israel. And this is the kingdom of Judah in the south. And had Jerusalem as its capital. And the relationship between these two kingdoms throughout the whole of the first temple period was very complex and varied at different times between peace, war, and something in between. Uh, some commentators, quite brilliantly, I think, have given our generation some insight into what this would look like, this dual kingdom, um, because there are, as you know, several movements within the current political scene in Israel that really Israel is inevitably heading towards, I'm talking about Jewish Israel, inevitably heading towards some sort of divided society. I won't go into this now, and I don't want to over-scandalize people, that it's becoming polarized and, in fact, may end up being two sort of separate states. I know that I've heard that discussion in Israel. I've heard people in Yehuda and Shomron say we should really make a hardcore religious Zionist state in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and let the rest of the country, the secular rest of the country, go their own way. And I have heard that exact same argument in Tel Aviv. Oh, if only Tel Aviv and the Gush Dan was its own state, and all the rest of those loonies can go and do what they want. That sort of divide, were it to happen, would be extremely similar to the sort of divide that was happening here. The Northern Kingdom had its own religion that was the closest thing probably that the ancient world could deliver to some sort of secular religion it was any religion could basically start up there was a plurocracy of polytheistic frenzy anyone could go where they want and worship and do what they want but the south was very from the south had the temple they had the davidic dynasty overall it was much more stable those of you who are familiar with Israeli society will know the difference between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And so it's worth noting that those differences have been around for thousands of years. It so happens that the 8th century, and I know people are thinking, oh my gosh, he's been speaking for 20 minutes and he hasn't even got onto the prophet Isaiah yet and he's just contextualizing, but context is everything. Once we contextualize, then everything can become clear. You would be aware that the 8th century was a time of great stability and economic prosperity in both kingdoms, but particularly in the northern kingdom, under the reign of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II. Despite the fact that Jeroboam II wasn't exactly the most holy or righteous king, he nevertheless administered a kingdom that found itself safe, secure, and prosperous. The guiding religious icons of the Northern Kingdom were, of course, the two golden calves that existed at Dun and Bet El, but a lot of other things were going on. But at the same time, there was a long and enduring kingship in the Southern Kingdom, in the Southern Kingdom, a decades-long rule by a very, very powerful, stable king called 
Uzziah, who famously painted Uzziah, not painted his portrait at the time, but there's a picture of Uzziah painted by Rembrandt. Yeah, you're familiar with the Rembrandt picture of Uzziah. Now, <laughs> already in the Northern Kingdom under Jeroboam II, this economic prosperity and, in a sense, military security, because there was overall a power vacuum, and amongst all these little states like Israel and Aram and Edom, there was no clear authority, you know, there was no clear aggressive uh, dominating force. There was everybody, it was like these states were able to exist in a type of geopolitical balance for much of this period. So militarily things were fairly secure and the economy was doing well. But the more we see in the Northern Kingdom during this period, the greater is the corruption and the injustice that is happening and particularly the gap between rich and poor and the wealthy are exploiting the lower classes and we are seeing exactly the sort of things that the Torah was warning should not be the case were coming to the fore and that is why we already have prophets that we've heard of and have their own books in the Bible who are very, very powerful prophets already appearing in the northern kingdom during the course of the 8th century. I mean, Elijah is back here, but here under Jeroboam II and the kings that succeeded him, we're seeing the rise of figures like Hosea and Amos who are already putting into high poetry these ideas about what it is that God is and what it is that God wants and how God is expressed in the society. And they are already warning the northern kings that the end is near unless there is some sort of redress of social justice. But in the south, Uzziah is regarded by the biblical narrative as a mostly righteous king. Except that even righteous kings sometimes lose the plot. And towards the end of his reign, what famously happened to Uzziah? You can see this if you look at the Rembrandt painting. <laughs> Uzziah decides, and it's an incredibly enlightening story, this, that the Bible tells us. And, and some aspects of this story I'm about to discuss are corroborated by archaeological evidence, so it's extremely interesting. But Uzziah comes to the temple one day with about 80 soldiers with him, and he marches into the temple and he says, I, Uzziah, the king, I'm going to offer the incense today. And the priests go, uh, no, uh, that's a job for the priests. That's a job for the Kohanim. You're the king, that's cool, but you do not offer incense. That we do. The sons of Aaron offer this. Uzziah says, not anymore and not today. I'm the king, I'm offering the incense. There's a big standoff in the temple. And Uzziah reminds them that behind him are standing 80 soldiers and the Kohanim are reminding him that there's a lot of Kohanim in the temple and they're not going to give ground. They're not going to let the king offer the incense. Uzziah says, I don't care. He goes, he prepares the incense. He moves towards the altar. And as he is about to do that, there is an earthquake. And there's a crack. I mean, this is, the earthquake is actually not mentioned in the Bible. The earthquake is part of a tradition that's recorded in a number of different places, including Josephus. And we have archaeological evidence of an earthquake at around exactly that time. And there's a crack in the wall. The sun beams through the wall and it strikes the eye in the face. And he turns around to face everybody assembled and they all go, <gasps> because he is completely struck from head to toe with leprosy and immediately must be removed from the entire temple precinct. In fact, he has to be removed from Jerusalem. 
was Yah famously spent the last few years of his reign living outside the walls of the city and was co-regent with his son, Yotam, uh, for the remainder of his reign. That is massively instructive, that story, not because it shows that at this time there was a struggle between the two great institutions in Jewish life, the kingship and the priesthood. If we take that further, we realize that that underlying conflict really lies throughout the whole temple and is one of the great reasons why we see in this period the rise of that third institution, the institution of prophecy, the institution of nevoah, of the Navi. The Navi was neither king nor priest necessarily, but was some sort of mediation between humanity and God that was really concerned with expressing the great moral and spiritual values. They weren't concerned with ritual. They weren't concerned with governance. They were concerned with the truth. And your tums ruling inside Jerusalem. Your tum, by the way, we're not going to go into your tum too much today, but your tum was a very, very righteous king, uh, Uzziah's son. But eventually, Uzziah died. <coughs> Some years later. Not, by the way, oh, this is so interesting, but I wish we could go into it. Obviously, you know that I highly distract myself when I realize the associations in history. You know that he's not the only leprous king of Jerusalem. Who was another leprous king of Jerusalem? We are so not going there. Much, 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 much later, in the time of the Crusades, the leprous crusader king of Jerusalem. It's a whole other story. We might go into another time. At the time that Uzziah died, a cousin of the king, a cousin of the king, a very holy and well-meaning young man called Isaiah ben Amotz is suddenly called because we are told that Amotz was the brother of Uzziah, so he is in a sense a cousin of the king, is suddenly called upon to become a prophet. The real opening of the book of Isaiah is not chapter 1, but chapter 6 which begins with the words, Bishnat Mot HaMelech Uziyahu, in the year of the death of the king Uziyahu, which is probably round about, probably round about minus 740. I saw God that we have two great big visions of the divine in these prophets. One we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks' time, the opening of the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, it's right there in the first chapter. Boom! And of course, Ezekiel can't handle it. He's on his face. and it's boom. Whereas Isaiah goes, dudes, I saw God. In the year that it was the Yahweh died, I saw God. And God's saying, we need to send a messenger to the people. And Isaiah, unlike Jeremiah, unlike the famous Jonah, Isaiah doesn't say, oh, not me, I don't want it. He says, pick me. So he's a very different type of prophet. He's used to being around the royal court. He's used to being around the temple. He's familiar with its institutions. He's not like Amos, who came basically from a peasant background. This is a different type of prophet from a very privileged, affluent, and spiritually and religiously informed background. That is the, in a sense, the chronologically in the career of Isaiah, the beginning of his career, and his career spans four kings and possibly even more. But the Bible tells us it's going to go through the, from Uzziah to Yotam to Ahaz to Chizkiyahu. So what's in the first five chapters? What are they doing there? Why are the first? Why have the? Why were the final compositors and editors of the book of Isaiah? If it really starts with the death of Uzziah and that great revelation of the divine to Isaiah, what is it that's in the first five chapters? And why are they there? They are there because they are showing us 
that the themes that are concerning Isaiah are already deeply present even prior to the death of Uziahu and that they are redolent within this society. And those themes are immense. And the only way to really express those themes is to say them as Isaiah says them. Hoi goi chote. Oi, hey, sinful nation, am kevid avon, a people heavy with sin. You are corrupt. You think you're righteous. You think you're religious. You think you're nice. You think you're good, but you are deeply mired in this utterly false understanding of the meaning of existence, the meaning of your purpose in the world as the people of Israel. Your sons are assholes and your daughters are sluts. Don't look at me, Isaiah. But that's the power of it. It is an absolute launch into the people. It was not well received then. <laughs> and it's not easy to read now. Isaiah is consumed with wrath at the self-righteousness of the people and their utter incomprehension of religion and ritual. I don't need your sacrifices, says God. I don't need your prayers. I never told you I wanted them. You cannot have a relationship with me based on this mechanical observance of ritual. You are from. I don't want from. I want righteousness. I want justice. You know, that's just the first chapter of Isaiah. So when you open it up, you're immediately left under no delusion as to what he's going to be on about. In the second chapter, we suddenly switch and we get the chilled Isaiah. The Isaiah that's had, you know, a bit of time. To <laughs> because we get a very different Isaiah already in chapter 2. This juxtaposition is startling for anyone who reads the book. Because chapter 2 is suddenly going into the incredibly ecstatic messianic vision that Isaiah is presenting throughout the book about what can be achieved with this nation and what can be achieved with humanity if in fact we make justice and righteousness the central concern. The big key turning point in the book of Isaiah, and obviously I'm just going to be going over it, structurally and touching on some of its things because I'm hoping that this discussion, if it achieves anything, is really about people going home and reading the book and all reading it again and understanding it deeper. But the big deal is chapter 7. Chapter 7. Because in chapter 7 we are already in the reign of Uzziah's grandson. Uzziah's son Yotam, as I said, ruled for a few years. He was a righteous king. Not a lot is said about him. In fact, he's the only king of Judah in the entire Bible about whom nothing negative is said whatsoever. Uh, and then Yotam, unfortunately, has uh, a king who is really not uh, made of the same cloth. Here we have a big shift. Here we have a big shift in the entire history of the kingdom of Judah that's going to have a tremendous impact on all of subsequent Jewish history. We have a king called Ahaz. Now Ahaz has got an issue which really comes to the fore in his reign and hasn't really been terribly discussed yet in relation to the whole geopolitical scene happening here. Because while everyone's going along merrily, and earlier in the century, stable kings in the north, stable kingdom in the south. All The north is starting to get a little bit fractious. The south is still going, but they've got weak kings now. And suddenly we see the rise of a totally different scene. Because over here, 
Not time, not on the timeline. I'm now talking, this is my geography picture over here. About 500 miles to the east. There's a new power. Well, it's not entirely new. The Assyrians have been around for a while. But this new re revival of their empire in what we call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, recognized by scholars as really the first of the great ideological, unstoppable, aggressive empires that are going to dominate the world for the next few hundred years, if not millennia, arises and expands and unstoppably expands everywhere. Now, obviously, the surrounding kings here have to make a choice, and their choice of, for example, a kingdom like Aram and a kingdom like Israel is going to be, if, well, if we band together with Egypt and Edom and a few of the other existing small kingdoms, we might be able to make a defensive alliance against the expansion of the Neo-Assyrians. By the way, I'm here to tell you, the Neo-Assyrians were not the British Empire. They didn't play cricket. And they didn't have cucumber sandwiches at high tea. They weren't very nice. They weren't nice. When they conquered you, they didn't say, OK, we've conquered you, now we're cool, we'll go home. You just sing a national anthem to us and raise our flag once in a while and everything will be OK. It wasn't like that. There was utter destruction and the deportation and ethnic cleansing of entire populations. If you were conquered by the Assyrians, you knew about it. You knew about it because you would suddenly find yourself either dead in slavery or somewhere else entirely in the world. It was over for you and your entire nation. So the choices were very stark. These kingdoms decided to make an alliance And Ahaz was under pressure because he didn't want to be part of that alliance. And he was counseled by the prophet Isaiah not to be part of that alliance. But in fact, he was going to go the other way. And he was really in conflict about whether or not maybe he should align himself with the Assyrians and go and say to the Assyrians, what would you like me to do so that I can preserve the kingdom of Judah? So in the famous chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah, Yeshayahu, I know I'm using those terms interchangeably, I'm hoping people will recognize it's the same person, Yeshayahu goes out to meet Ahaz and tells him, well, expresses to him really, and I'm focusing just for a few minutes on chapter 7, because it's very, very instructive for the way in which God seems to want the people of Israel to negotiate political theory. And that is, it's a theory of neutrality. Ahaz does not, uh, the God does not, through Isaiah, does not want Ahaz to form an alliance with the Assyrian Empire on the understanding that if the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, if the Jewish people generally commit themselves to behaving and acting in the way that is consistent with their purpose in the land and focusing on justice and righteousness, they have nothing to worry about from their enemies. They have nothing to worry about from their enemies. They do not need to play geopolitical games. And a sign is given to Ahaz, a sign that, of course, is famously misinterpreted by another religion, and you'll find that in chapter 7 as well. And of course, the overall outcome is that Ahaz doesn't really listen to God, and he makes an alliance with Assyria. In fact, he sends Assyria massive tribute. He sends them all sorts of treasures and goodies from the temple, and the Assyrians, as a result of which, leave Judah intact, but the situation is highly unresolved. These two kingdoms of Aram and Israel, who, and Ahaz was worried that they were going to attack them, and God told Ahaz, don't worry about them, they're finished. And in fact, within a few short years, they were finished. First of all, 
the Neo-Assyrians came and they wiped out Aram. No more. There's no more kingdom called Aram. End of story. You're gone from history. And then that, of course, was under the immense figure, immense figure in the Neo-Assyrian Empire of Tiglat-Pileser. Tiglat-Pileser, <laughs> some people think, oh, Tiglat-Pileser, some, some guy mentioned in the Bible. I mean, Tiglat-Pileser is a, is a world figure of the ancient world. He is one of the greatest conquerors and commanders of the entire period. You know that every year the Neo-Assyrians had to go out. They had to conquer new territory. Otherwise, you know, they'd be accused of being leftists by their own people. They, they, they had this in, unstoppable surge to conquer. Tigar Pilesa was an immense conqueror. And we know all this not just from the Bible. So people need to realize that when we look at these figures in Tanakh, they are not just figures in the Bible. We know about this from corroborative chronicles of the Assyrian Empire itself. How do we know what the chronicles of the Assyrian Empire are? How do we know that? Where, where's that from? How do we know? Like where? Sorry? Statues on the one. But the really, really big deal is that in the 19th century, when British and German and French archaeologists are crawling all over stealing stuff, what do they discover in Iraq? The library of Ashurbanipal. One of the later Neo-Assyrian kings, 30,000 cuneiform tablets. So we know about the Neo-Assyrian Empire in great detail. And all these things are mentioned there, corroborating the narrative of Tanakh. We can go into that. That's a totally fascinating thing. But we need to get back to Isaiah. So <laughs> Ahaz reigns for 15, 16 years or so. And he dies, he manages to hold off, pay tribute to the Assyrians. He's not a great king. In fact, more and more Assyrian schmeck is coming into <laughs> Jewish society. There are things happening all the time. Of course, <coughs> it is during the reign of Ahaz that the Neo-Assyrians return, this time under a different leader, uh, well, Shalmaneser, really, and Sargon, and they come back and they wipe out the whole of the northern kingdom. And those ten tribes, gone. We sometimes forget that although we call ourselves Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, we are but the Sherita Pleta. We are just the remnant of the greater Israel. What remains now is the kingdom of Judah from which we get Judaism and Jewish and all of those things come from those massive events in around minus 720 and the destruction and the ethnic cleansing of the northern kingdom. Now we have just the kingdom of Judah, but we have a new king because Ahaz has a son and Ahaz's son is one of the greatest and most righteous and incredible kings in the whole of the first temple in the whole of the Davidic kingship. And that, of course, is Hezekiah, Hezekiahu. Hezekiahu is the main figure. When you're looking um, at the background issues to the book of, of Isaiah, it is Hezekiahu's complex personality and complex career that is the context in which Isaiah is expressing many of his great ideas. To cut the long story short, 20 years later, the Assyrians come back and they attempt to wipe out the kingdom of Judah. One of the most instructive things that you can look at in order to understand the revolution effected by the prophet Isaiah in partnership with King Hezekiahu is just to go to wherever you, you can Google it, you can, you can, you can, in whichever way you do research, and you can look at the map of the expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Have a look at it. Have a look at that map, and you will notice something extraordinary. I'm not talking about opening up some yay, yay, we're the great Jews, Jewish history book, and saying, oh, we're wonderful, and look at this. I'm talking about going to objective historical maps, look at the expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and you will notice something astonishing. In 720, in, in around minus, in around, well, 20 years later, uh, seven, minus 720 is the, 
is the fall of the northern kingdom. But in around 700, the Neo-Assyrians return under Sancherib with an enormous army. And however you want to attribute I mean, their commanders are mocking the Jews at the gates of Jerusalem. They had already utterly destroyed the countryside of Judah. 46 towns got wiped out. And we have excavations from a place, for example, Lachish. Lachish at the time was the second largest urban center in Judah. We know that that was completely annihilated in a ferocious and cruel destruction. And they come to Jerusalem and they say, what makes you think that you and your God are going to withstand the might of the Neo-Assyrian Empire? They sent letters to Chizkiyahu. Chizkiyahu takes these letters up to the roof and he opens them up to the heavens and he says, God, this is the end of the Jewish people unless you do something now. It's not like, oh, you know, the state of Israel, well, we've still got a few million Jews in America and we've got a few in Europe and elsewhere and if the state of Israel, God forbid, was to be destroyed, it wouldn't necessarily be the end of the Jewish people. But at that time, there's no diaspora. This is it. Everything that is part of this ongoing continuum and covenantal relationship, it's gone unless you do something now because there's 200,000 Assyrian soldiers outside the gates and they're about to knock the place down and they're going to wipe everyone out. This is it. And of course... <laughs> Am Haolchim Bachoshech says Ishayahu in chapter 11, Ra'u Or Gadol, one of the greatest miracles of Jewish history. Now, there are various accounts of it. The biblical account is that people wake up in the morning and they look over the walls and there's 185,000 Assyrian soldiers dead. Other accounts say that they were paid off, they went somewhere else, or they had another conflict where they had to go to, but whatever the case was, that didn't happen and the Assyrian army went away. When you look at the maps of the expansion of the Assyrian Empire, they are everywhere, everywhere. They have conquered. There's nothing they didn't conquer, nothing they didn't conquer, except the kingdom of Yehuda. this little square sitting right in the middle of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Chizkiyahu is a proto-messianic figure. According to some scholars, he was the Messiah. He then becomes very, very ill. And uh, Isaiah goes into him and tells him that, uh, according to God, uh, he's going to die. And famously, Isaiah utters that incredibly earnest prayer and even while Isaiah is still in the building heading out, he gets a call on the cell phone from God saying, go back into Hezekiah and tell him I'm going to give him another 15 years. This is all recorded in the book of Kings. It's recorded in the book of, Isaiah, the book of Yeshayahu. And so there's some of the historical issues surrounding what is happening with Hezekiah and Yeshayahu. Of course, and of interest to us, is the fact that when the northern kingdom fell, many, many people of the kingdom of Israel made their way back over the border, and it is during the late period of the kingdom of Ahaz and during the kingdom of Hezekiah that the population of Jerusalem increased something like 15-fold. That is why it is Hezekiah who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, not just as a defense against the Neo-Assyrians, and also dug water channels that can still be seen today. But in fact, you know, play things like, who's been to the old city of Jerusalem? So you're familiar with it, right? So, you know, you go to like the Armenian quarter would have been like a flash new suburb in those days. Remember that until that time, the city of David, that southern part, part of the southern wall, that small part was really Jerusalem. But it was under King Hezekiahu, under this population increase, that he basically created the shape more or less that we know the old city today. And you can still, well, the Romans enlarged it a lot, but you can still see the Hezekiah's wall going through the middle of the old city because the Jerusalem itself became greatly expanded. 
But what's also happening, and that's why we've entered a new shift, a new phase. But what is also happening under the influence of these prophets, Hoshea and Amos in the north, but particularly Shayahu and his younger contemporary, the prophet Micha in the south, is a much greater transformation that I'm going to speak about for the remaining few minutes because that really brings us to this understanding of Yeshayahu, the book. Obviously, I'm not going to be doing justice to its poetry, to its power, but really to understand some of the essential messengers it contains. Otherwise, we're going to run out of time and people are going to go, oh, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about that. And the truth is that 50 minutes is a woefully inadequate time to talk about the book of Isaiah because we've obviously spent time just getting the historical context. There is an immense transformation happens in our concept of God. Some people, some people take it for granted that what I'm about to say has always been the case, but it hasn't. Until the rise of these prophetic figures, <coughs> the God of Israel was regarded as the greatest God in the world. The greatest God. Other nations had gods, but they were nothing compared to our God. Our God could schmice them anytime he wanted. Our God created the universe, sure, but you know, ba-boom, greatest God. The first huge transformation that these prophets effected, but particularly the book of Isaiah, particularly the book of Isaiah, is what we call the universalization of God. That God is not merely the God of the Jewish people, but that God is the God of the whole of humanity. It is the same God. It is the one God, a God of universal principles, a God that is invested in all of humanity and seeks humanity everywhere to be at peace and living with justice and righteousness. It is not just the case that God is our God and he's greater. It's one God. From the very first chapter, Isaiah makes it clear that God is capable of offering humanity choices, or that humanity is capable of making choices in relation to God. And the prophets, particularly Yeshayahu, introduce an idea into world spirituality that really doesn't exist before this and yet is a cornerstone, becomes a cornerstone of Jewish belief. And that idea is the idea of teshuva, the idea of, and those of you who've heard me speak elsewhere will know that I am, I, 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 I'm, I'm very hesitant to translate the concept of teshuva to mean the word repentance. Because repentance is a very, very weak approximation of the full value of the word teshuva. The word teshuva really means teshuva. It comes primarily from response. It, it means an inner transformation when a person or a collective of people realize that they have nowhere else to look for change other than within themselves and they completely transform from within their relationship to other and their relationship to the divine, which are effectively the same thing. This incredible idea of teshuvah, that it doesn't matter how evil I've been, from the moment I begin to transform myself, my reality becomes transformed, my society becomes transformed, my world becomes transformed. And that my sins are in fact cleansed. But they are not cleansed because I brought sacrifice X. Or they are not cleansed because I did ritual Y. They are cleansed because of an inner transformation I make within myself and my relations to others. And I start introspecting on the way that we are behaving and how we behave towards those who are less privileged than ourselves, how we close those gaps that create corruption and injustice in the world. The whole concept of tikkun olam comes from Yeshayahu's talking about this issue. <laughs> 
and in chapters 40, uh, 42 and 60, you will see the famous words that Ishayahu talks about the purpose of the Jewish people in relation to this idea and that the Jewish people are in fact they are a light to the nations and they are not a light to the nations because they go round conquering other peoples through some sort of absolutist version of what religion should be they are a light to the nations through dogma they are a light to the nations through their own example of how they live. That is the purpose of the Jewish people. So not only is God universalized in relation to the nations of the world, so are the Jewish people themselves universalized in relation to the world. Once we effect that inner transformation... <laughs> that's very funny. This sort of Mary Ann was at the back holding up like five, going like that's right. <laughs> Which is very good, it's very good. Once we effect that transformation, then we start to create a reality that looks like what Isaiah is describing right throughout the book, but particularly chapters 2, chapters 11, and the entire ecstatic narrative that emerges from chapter 40 to 66 about this thing called Aharit Hayamim, the end of days, what we call the messianic period. This messianic period of world peace. No one really had thought of this idea of world peace. Or if they thought about it, they weren't writing about it before Isaiah. Today we talk about world peace as like this, you know, Disneyland existence. The idea, the idea that that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they any longer learn war, is not a naive idea. It's not some pipe dream. It is utterly achievable, says Yeshayahu, when nations realize their responsibility towards themselves, towards each other, towards their own populations. This begins with the individual. And it spreads from the individual to the society and from the society to the whole world. The people primarily responsible for that happening in the world are in fact these mad neurotic people living in a place called Israel. We are the cornerstone of this great empires that will emerge in the next few thousand years. And in fact, what we saw, you know, follow the, after the Assyrians are going to come the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians are going to come the Persians, after the Persians are going to come the Romans. And they are all based on the idea of conquest. They are all based on the idea of war. They are not nations built on righteousness. Now, God doesn't have a problem with nations per se, but the Jewish people cannot be a nation like other nations. We exist with a purpose. We exist as a dogma in the world. This emerges clearly from Yeshayahu. Obviously, in his discussion of the Messianic vision, Yeshayahu is going to cover a number of topics, the, particularly the cycle of the servant songs that I would have liked to speak about a little bit, the, the, you know, um, which have been variously interpreted. That is why... So many, not only so many haftarot in our own liturgical calendar are taken from Yeshayahu, but also uh, why Yeshayahu is seen so saturated by Christianity, seen by Christianity as saturated with the uh, discussions about their perception of the messianic figure and their understanding of the Messiah, but all of those, all of those perceptions are generally bound up in a preconceived notion that is that the Messiah is an individual or a figure that has already come and once again somehow got to do with the, an equation to do with the absolution of sin and all of it. But it's nothing to do with what Isaiah is actually saying. Most scholars, even Christian scholars, would agree that the servant in Isaiah is in fact the Jewish people. It is in fact the people of Israel, whose role in the world is to be the servant of the divine and who are looking forward to a moment where they don't have to be the Jewish people anymore because the world will have achieved this species consciousness, if you like, of the, of the evil and non-necessity of war.
and that the world itself can live in righteousness and peace. Now, I need you to realize that I really needed another hour to get into the themes of Yeshayahu. We will try, we will try next week in, when we discuss Jeremiah to perhaps be, I will, I will try and reduce the first part of historical context in order to be able to uh, talk about the themes there more effectively, although the historical context of Jeremiah is itself awesome. But if we just understand that Yeshayahu, I'm winding up now, is not just another prophet. There is an enormous transition in theology and consciousness of the Jewish people that happens in this period. Not only spiritually, but politically and geographically, there is a massive shift that happens around the prophet Yeshayahu, whose themes have affected the world ever since. Thank you. Yeah. We'll get up to there. There is... As the, the, those of you who are sitting there going, you know, oh, but you didn't say this, you didn't talk about this, please just be kind because you know that there's a time frame. So I'm happy to take a couple of Q&A. Yeah, I know, I know some of you like me have to go to work. So we'll take a few questions mm -hmm. if there are any. But before we do that, I don't, I don't think you can hear me without that. But you should know that I went to a Jewish day school from first grade to 12th grade. And we read all everything. We read the whole Tanakh. We read all the prophets. But no one actually put it in context. So this brings you back about 30 years. And now I can think back to what I actually learned and realize that if you teach the books without the context, they don't do anything for you. So I don't know what they do at Tarboot. I don't know what they do at other Jewish day schools. But I'm glad that we did record this lecture. So if you want to share it with other people or with kids who are studying it or adults who are studying the book, Grendel will have this lecture up shortly. And uh, that's my personal And just on opinion. that subject, though, I know, and, and people who've got to go, please go. We won't be considered rude if you have to go. But for example, who, how many of us go to shul quite regularly? Nice. So you would know, for example, the one of, you know, how many famous haftarot there are that come from Isaiah. And probably the most famous haftarah of all is what? Oh, hello. Thank, thank you so much. Very good. So the most famous haftarah that comes from Isaiah is the haftarah of Parashat Vayet Hanan, which comes right after Tisha B'Av. Yep. So Isaiah is going, you know, from chapter 40, he's going, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Yomar, Elokechem. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I know that that's from the second part of Isaiah, but what's it about? So even if it is got to do with uh, even if it has got to do with the post-exilic. This is just talking about putting it in context. And you read that Haftarah every week, you read that Haftarah every week, but what is it actually saying? And what is it actually referring to? The prophet Yeshayahu... <laughs> the, the, the obviously, so there, there are now two modes in which we can look at this. And I just realized that I'm just looking at you now, and you're probably... Yeah, and I know that some of you are looking at me going, oh, wow, he's going to explain that. And I... And I, and, I, and I would like to get into that, but I realize it would take us on a big journey. But ultimately, the, the second half of Yeshayahu, from which many of those Haftarot are taken, so, and, 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 and they're, not, they're not just sublime poetry, but for example, they are huge theological questions. Uh, you know, is a huge statement. Sins, the sins of a nation, are a barrier to their relationship with God. God ultimately wants us to be in a very, very close relationship with Him as a nation, as a people. A, a point where we almost express God in the world, just to go quietly. But Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. Comfort you, comfort you. These immense discussions that emerge out of Isaiah but actually apply to the situation following the destruction of the temple really only come into resonance once we look at the context of what then is going to happen over the next hundred years. It is absolutely pathetic when you realize that after this immense miracle that happened here and there's no question it's a miracle whether you want to look at it secularly or whether you want to look at it religiously it is an enormous miracle that the people of Israel and the Jewish people survived this and yet nevertheless nevertheless over the course of the next 120 years we see this 
degradation yet again where we do not understand and we do not internalize and we do not appreciate what we are meant to be doing in the world. Each generation seems to wake up unconscious about what has happened before. And so it's even more powerful when you realize that Isaiah or the book of Yeshayahu is, saying, is, is, is telling the Jewish people, nevertheless, that God will not abandon the Jewish people. Will not ab- there will always be a sherit apleta. There will always be a remnant. You know, a woman will forget her firstborn before I will forget you, says God. And you are like a, a you know, like a boat tossed on a tempest. Sorry? No, no. But nevertheless, the, 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 what amazes me about the book of Yeshayahu is not, it's not like when we read Homer. It's not like when we read other poetry from the ancient world. It's certainly not like the Book of Mormon. <laughs> These are actual events. But when we read the book of Yeshayahu, what amazes me so much is just how it speaks to us today about how, we, about how that consciousness of what it is to be Jewish in the world, which really emerges from here, is embedded in our life in a daily basis, in our existential condition. And therefore, Yeshayahu, 2,700 years ago, can still speak to us, can still speak to us, can still say, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, Yomar Elokechem. Whether it is the destruction of the temple, whether it is the Holocaust, whether it is uh, any of the wild events that have happened in the last two and a half millennia, it still speaks to us today because God is still, you know, kol korebamid voices calling out in the desert. Every single atom of Jewish spirituality is contained in the book of Isaiah. I cannot urge you enough, even if you, as Ari said, you went read it 30 years ago, go back and read it again and Read it in the Hebrew if you can, because that is the the way to go.